This conversation on COVID-19 is made possible by Discovery. Hello, I'm Alec Hogg, and welcome to episode 67 of Inside COVID-19. In this episode, we take a closer look at Vitality's successful crowdfunding approach to helping the nation fight the coronavirus. There's a rational perspective on South Africa's hotly debated 71 billion rand pandemic-related loan from the International Monetary Fund. We'll hear from the independent actuaries and professionals group Panda on why data suggests to them that the country is at or close to an infection peak And if you've ever wondered where that two-meter social distancing rule came from, well, the answer's coming up tonight. Inside COVID-19 from BizNews. In today's COVID-19 headlines, first, the good news. After four months of lockdown and anxiety, there's a growing number of analysts who now believe South Africa's coronavirus pandemic has indeed peaked. As we reported last week, data compiled by Johns Hopkins University in the United States reflected a clear decline in the country's infections. This morning, Director of the Center for Risk Analysis, Dr. Franz Cronier, added his voice. Our chart suggests to us that new daily infection numbers peaked over the past week, whilst the R indicator for South Africa spent much of the week below the level of 1. R is the reproductive value of the virus, and if the R indicator is below 1, it suggests that the pandemic has begun to slow. New daily death numbers are still rising, but this will be the case given that they reflect infections that occurred weeks ago. If R is now sustained below 1 for a further week, and I think that's what we're going to see, then we can say with some confidence that South Africa has passed its infection peak and a great economic and social reopening will continue into our spring. That reopening won't come a moment too soon for the coordinator of PANDA, Nick Hudson, from whom we will hear later in the program. A group of independent actuaries and professionals has been lobbying for a less conservative approach by the South African government and has been outspoken in its resistance of the lockdown. Reinforcing the peaked thesis is data that although South Africa's confirmed infections rose above half a million on the weekend, its active cases are continuing the recent decline. After hitting 173,500 on the 20th of July, South Africa's active cases stood on Sunday night at 156,000. It's still the fifth highest of any country, but a long way below where it was a week before. On Saturday, for instance, South African recoveries on the day were over 16,000 against new infections of 10,000. Another promising stat is that daily cases are now running at around 10,000 compared with the peak of 14,000 on July the 24th. Although total South African deaths are at 8,366, the ratio of these mortalities to confirmed infections is 1.6% under half 
the global average of 3.8%. Inside COVID-19, from BizNews. Dr. Masima Mabunda is the head of Vitality Wellness. Lovely to be with you here to talk about what you've been doing with crowdsourcing philanthropy in this time of COVID-19. It's an innovative concept. How far does it go back, the whole movement? When was that created? Vitality Move to Give has been with us for a number of years. It goes back as far as 2016. It's a series of campaigns that enables our members who reach their weekly goals to donate their Vitality Active Rewards to a pre-selected course or charity. Instead of claiming their reward with one of our partners, they can actually donate their miles to that pre-selected course, allowing them to actually be a force for social good. And in that setting, Discovery typically matches the member donations to increase the amount that ultimately gets donated to those pre-selected courses. And how do you select the causes? It varies with where the need is the greatest and what aligns with what we are doing as an organization. COVID is a perfect example where the need is dire. The economic impact of the pandemic, the plight of the healthcare workers, in there the need was almost written in the stars, right, where people are starving and we would align with those organizations that are trying to meet those challenges. And we then, after a vetting process, would onboard them onto the program and then we go on and encourage our members to donate their active rewards towards those organizations. How much have the members opened their wallets to donate the discovery miles? I still continue to be blown away to date by just how selfless most of our members are. To date, we've raised close to 2 million rands and we're only approaching the fifth month of the COVID pandemic and this is not the end. Are they allowed to pick individual charities to give the money to or does it all go into one pool? So with Vitality Move to Give, we have pre-selected campaigns that we run. And in that cycle, we encourage our members to support that campaign. So there's a rolling range of campaigns that we do. And the most recent one, which could not have come at a better time, is our partnership with Sharper Masks, where we're trying to contribute and get our members to be part of the solution to get PPE in the hands of our frontline workers who are out there fighting the pandemic on our behalf. That's a lovely campaign, the Shout for Moss. You've yeah. got celebrities involved. You've got a very, very good cause. Is it gathering momentum? We launched and announced Shout for Masks last week, Thursday. And as you rightly say, it's a partnership that's spearheaded by local musicians, Denike and Kabelo Mabalani. And what I like about the Shout for Masks is it's not just Vitality members that have an opportunity to contribute. If you go to their webpage, they've got options on how you can actually contribute because it takes each and every single one of us in the country to do our part in helping our frontline workers and keeping them safe. It's nice to see you can start at 100 Rand and that'll buy five surgical masks and two N95 masks, or you can go as high as 250,000 Rand, which some companies have done. Really, only 150 discovery miles is what you will need to donate six surgical masks to healthcare workers. And if you donate a 1,000 discovery miles, you can go further and donate a hospital mask combo that includes N95 masks and up to 20 surgical masks to those who keep us safe. It actually doesn't take a lot. And in a weekly cycle, Vitality members would be able to donate quite a significant amount to this cause. A celebrity of a different type is Solly Crock, who's 91 years old, and he's committed to raising more than 100 million rand for people in poor and rural communities. You're involved there. How did that come about? 
The pandemic has deepened the economic divide in our country and across the globe. A lot of people have lost their job. And I mean, it goes without saying that that translates into a lot of hungry families, right? So in line with what we're trying to do and realizing the importance of nutrition to well-being and that the basic need is for people to eat, it came as a no-brainer that that initiative aligns with what we're trying to do within Discovery. And being a part of that just came naturally for the business because we're able to to feed people in need. So Discovery members who are seeing it for the first time, they know about Discovery Miles that they can earn in, or through the Discovery Bank or through driving properly or, of course, through active rewards. How do they go about participating? For Vitality members, you activate active rewards. And on active rewards, as Vitality members would know, you get set personalized goals. And when you reach those goals, you get an opportunity to play on the game board and you can use the mouse that you earn from reaching your goals to donate to these charitable courses. So I would encourage every single one to actually, if you haven't activated active rewards, this is an opportune time to actually use your health gains to benefit the broader society. And how does this all fit within the group's shared value model? This for me actually represents the epitome and the heart of our shared value model. Because if you think about our shared value model that has members, the insurers and society, it is the actions of their members that gets them health and that results in savings for the insurer, but that builds a healthier society. And instead of opting to purchase something on Active Rewards Mall, you take those gains that we incentivize you with and you contribute to a course and that ultimately builds a society that we all want to live in. Inside COVID-19 from BizNews. Friday night's announcement of South Africa's 71 billion rand loan from the International Monetary Fund to help pay for the fight against the COVID-19 pandemic has evoked considerable comment. Here's a rational perspective from Stanlib Chief Economist Kevin Lings. At the moment, the government is borrowing the equivalent of 1 billion rand every single day in South Africa. And I'm including Saturdays and Sundays in that calculation. Now, obviously, the government doesn't actually borrow on Saturdays and Sundays. It issues uh, tranches of debt during the course of the week, every week. But it amounts to more than one billion rand every single day. And it's got to keep doing that every single day for the remainder of this year in order to stand a chance of adequately funding themselves. That's what we are up against. Now, if you say to that government, you're borrowing one billion every day, and on top of that, I want you to borrow an additional 70 billion, however you do that, would the government be pleased with that? And obviously the response would be, well, this is, you're now pushing us into dangerous territory because the danger here is that as the government tries to borrow more and more and more, at some point, the market doesn't want to give them the money. Nobody wants to give them the money that the people who domestically are providing the government with this finance, which are essentially pension funds, unit trusts, the savers of South Africa, that uh, the government tries to raise the money domestically and there's no money. At that point, you would have a failed auction. And the risk with a failed auction is that you're massively closer to a debt default. So the government has to make a decision and that decision says, we're already putting the domestic market under significant pressure. Yes, we could try and borrow that 70 billion. Instead of going to the IMF, we could try and borrow it domestically. 
But there's a risk. There's an increasing risk that at some point it's just too much. So they look around and they see that the IMF is has got this facility that they're making more readily available and that over a 100 countries have applied for this facility. And this facility comes with generous terms. And so they look at that and they think, well, here's a way to diversify my borrowing. I don't have to borrow everything domestically. They're very well aware that there's a risk with this. And the risk is that you're borrowing in dollars, and so you've got to repay in dollars. And as the currency weakens, it's going to increase effectively the cost of that. So they may have looked at it and thought, well, the currency is already a lot weaker than it ought to be. So maybe that risk isn't that profound. The interest rate is 1.1%. We get a holiday for the next three years in terms of repaying it. There's very little conditionality attached to it. Why not? And it's a legitimate view. Why not? South Africa has relatively low foreign debt. That doesn't mean you want to now go purposely increase the foreign debt because when we look around the world, the countries that have got themselves into real trouble are the countries with a lot of foreign debt. So, you don't want to, you don't want to just because you've got little foreign debt, you don't want to just add. So I guess it's a, it's a balance of factors. Um, I think it wasn't a bad move. I think that, um, there are a couple of reasons why. One is it forces the government to articulate the problem. They've got to discuss the problem with the IMF. They have to, they have to have a meetings and discuss how this is going. They've got to articulate it in form of a letter and an undertaking, and I think that articulation is very useful because it does allow for quantifying the problem more acutely. You can't just ramble on about the problem. You've got to condense it, and I think that's useful. The second thing is you've also got to come face-to-face with what it's going to take for you to fix the problem, and once you put that on paper and now it's available in public, it's very clear what you're up against. So I think that process of writing a letter of, of intent or undertaking helps to clarify the problem. And it helps to clarify the problem for a lot of people as opposed to political mumbo-jumbo around the problem. And I think people would be advised to read that letter because it does just that. It clarifies what the problem is. The third thing it does is it does tend to encourage foreigners. When foreigners see that uh, a country's approached the IMF, they already know the country's in difficulty, but by approaching the IMF, there's a tendency to think the foreigner will now try and put their house in order. That may be a false belief. That may turn out to to not be valid. So to me, it does a number of things. The amount, 70 billion, within the context of South Africa is small. It does give us a higher level of responsibility with regards to doing the right thing. And perhaps that's not a bad thing within the context of South Africa that they is this entity outside of South Africa that's keeping a closer eye on how the country's being managed. So on balance, I would say it's not a bad uh, process. I think it's gone reasonably okay, although we did delay the letter. The drafting of the letter took a huge amount of time. So you can see the anguish within the government of even just, just that, of approaching the IMF. But I think it's helpful. I think it, it allowed for them to articulate this. And as promised, here's the highlight of that interview with Nick Hudson, coordinator at Panda, which over the weekend applied the Gompertz curve to all of South Africa's provinces 
and came to the conclusion that the worst really could be behind us. We were trying to stay out of the modeling game. You know, we felt there were enough people in it and we were trying to make the high level points like just acknowledge people that there's a trade-off between managing the disease and, and uh, managing life for the rest of your uh, citizens. We tried to point out that, you know, the narrative that everybody was at risk to this horrible virus was simply not the case, that it affected a small proportion of every population and, you know, predominantly old and very sick people. Um, we tried to point out that um, the lockdown impacts in terms of the, the costs, the negatives, were going to be much strongly felt, more strongly felt in developing countries than in developed ones. You know, so that we try to keep our narrative in that space. But as the, um, as the gap between these models and the real world started growing, um, and we started getting phone calls from doctors and hospital administrators saying, listen, I've got this model. It doesn't make any sense. It's not what we're seeing. Can you guys give us some guidance? We started putting out these Gompertz curves. And the one we put out for the Western Cape on the same day that the, the NRCD published their model was uncannily accurate. I mean, we weren't expecting it to be that good. It, it, you know, we put it out on the same day, and we haven't we haven't touched it since. And it's tracking in a much narrower confidence interval than the NRCD provided, and it predicted the peak correctly, and it predicted the decline correctly. It's all just tracking in a very narrow range, and that's the Western Cape for you. So we, what we decided to do on the weekend now is just just to try and sort of try and manage our own time because we a small organisation, you can't deal with all this inbound. Uh, communication. We just miss half of it. You know, our inboxes are just like totally overflowing. Um, so what we decided to do was put out curves for the other provinces that we've modeled so far, which are the major provinces, you know, the, the, the experience in Pumalanga and Limpopo and Northern Province and so on is, is, is just too, and Northwest is just too small and too light for us to do anything with at the moment. But, um, so we put out Kauteng, KwaZulu Natal, um, Eastern Cape and Western Cape. And, you know, just in an effort to sort of try and give people some guidance as to what's actually happening out there. Uh, you know, so the Eastern Cape's past its peak. South Africa, we think, is probably also past its peak, although we'll need a few days to to confirm that. Um, Gauteng is close. Um, it's not the October peak that uh, the, the NRCD uh, is predicting. So what you've done is gone into the modeling game Yourself. Yeah, but through the back door. Through you the know, back. Applying somebody else's method. <laughs> okay. you know, can't help it. Uh, we've tried really hard. What can you do? I mean, what else do you want us to do? Just let these people say, no, sorry, we can't help you, you know? And we will, we will update those curves as we go. You yeah. were criticized roundly of, uh, of, or just criticizing not offering a solution. Now you are showing your own models and they do appear to be somewhat different to everybody else's. To what degree, though, how confident are you that administrators in hospitals in provinces that are now preparing themselves for the pandemic or for the wave that is going to hit them, uh, that they can use your models and uh, not find themselves short of ICU beds? We're pretty confident that the broad trajectories are well described by those models. I mean, it would be an enormous departure for South Africa to do something that no other country in the world has done. And this is the nature of the point that we've been making all the way along. We wouldn't put those models out if we had some doubt that they would be materially wrong, Alec. It would just be grossly irresponsible. But I just want to pick up on your earlier point, you know, this idea that we throw bricks. I mean, it's simply not the case. I mean, from the very beginning, we've been recommending alternative policy uh, ideas. You know, in the first place, we pointed out, look, this disease um, is, it only has a significant, only poses a significant risk to a small portion of the population who are not 
economically productive. So you should be addressing your resources towards them and letting the rest of us get along with our lives, getting involved in the production that provides the state and private individuals with the capacity to respond to things like a viral threat. We've suggested techniques of dealing with um, old age homes and uh, and reducing the burden there to try and avoid that situation that existed in, in the tri-state area in the U.S. where you just have this, and in Canada as well, where you just have this terrible uh, rushing through of the virus through nursing homes and so on. We've recommended that it was a, a, a good idea to, instead of spreading the resources so broadly, we suggested take some of that $500 billion and increase the state old age pension for a few months so that older people who are poorer can find the means to isolate themselves. We've had a number of policy suggestions along the way. We throw bricks at lockdown, make no mistake. We throw bricks at those models because they've caused a panic. And we, don't, and we also, the other thing we really criticize is this fear mongering, you know, which the models are implicated. You diminish people's agency and their ability to get on in the world when you drive them into these positions of intense fear, uh, irrational fear, you know, and it's still around us. I mean, I've got friends who's, who won't let their children outdoors after school and that kind of thing. It's just, you know, really, there's no relationship to the real, to the real risk involved. All over the world, the authorities have imposed a six-feet or two-meter social distancing rule. But where does the number come from? Kristen V. Brown from our partners at Bloomberg went to find out. When I go to the grocery store, there are these little vinyl stickers on the floor, six feet apart, that tell me where to wait in line. When I run in the park by my house, there are signs there too, demonstrating the distance that fellow exercisers should keep from one another. In the last few months, like many people, I have gotten really good at eyeballing a distance of six feet. In the midst of a surging pandemic, six feet has become a number that we all live by. But where does that number come from exactly? It turns out the actual distance for safe social distancing is kind of hard to pin down. I talked with Gabriel Isaacman Van Wertz, a scientist at Virginia Tech, who studies the way that particles change in the atmosphere. But there isn't some number that says, well, beyond this, there's no risk. And in front of that, you know, closer than this, there is a risk. Or beyond this, all of the things that are infectious have been gone, are gone, they fall into the ground. And closer than that, then there is still infectious risk, right? So that number is going to depend on sort of what is the activity. And what is the environment and what is the airflow, right? Are you upwind of someone or downwind of someone? Are you inside a room? Are you outside? Is the air still, you know, what's the air ventilation rate in the room? And so I think a lot of the issue around, around that uncertainty kind of, kind of stems from this issue that it is fundamentally a question of circumstance. There is little doubt that strategies like wearing a mask and social distancing play a major role in stopping the spread of COVID-19. The question is how far apart you have to be in order to adequately avoid risk. The CDC recommends at least six feet from other people as a way to avoid the potentially infectious droplets a person launches into the air when they cough, sneeze, or talk. The World Health Organization, on the other hand, recommends just three feet. But Gabriel says the issue is that there isn't just one magic number. 
when we talk or sneeze or do anything, we're not releasing like some big particles and some small particles. And, and then that's it. And we can talk about them separately. Right. We tend to release kind of these mixtures of particle sizes. Um, and once they're in the air, they can change more. So they can, you know, our breath is very humid, so it can get out into the air. That's what the fog is that we're seeing when we breathe out in the winter. And so I think the difficulty is that it's all sort of this continuum. And so, you know, the question is, how much do we need to breathe in and, and how infectious is it really? The three foot rule actually dates back to the turn of the last century. I talked with Catherine Randall, a medical historian at Virginia Tech, who is working to figure out the origins of these numbers. Interestingly, she says, we don't really know where the rule comes from. At one point, diseases were regarded primarily as airborne. And at the beginning of the 20th century, scientists moved toward the idea that when a person sneezes or coughs, they produce infectious droplets that quickly fall to the ground. In the 30s, a Harvard scientist suggested those droplets could travel three feet. Fast forward to the early aughts, a study of SARS transmission on a plane suggested droplets could travel more like six feet. Another recent study found that coughs and sneezes create turbulent gas clouds that can carry pathogens a whopping 27 feet. More recently, the World Health Organization recognized that COVID-19 can be airborne in indoor spaces with poor ventilation after pressure from hundreds of scientists. The issue, though, as Gabriel points out, is that there isn't a dichotomy here. It's not that a virus is either airborne or spreads through droplets when we cough and sneeze. It's a spectrum. The bigger question instead is whether the virus is actually infectious in all of these different ways that we encounter it. Obviously, we know that sneezing and coughing produce a lot of different size particles. We know they can travel fairly far. We have a, a pretty good body of literature now that says that even things like talking and singing produce um, some of the smaller particles. Uh, we have some literature that says that in, in certain cases, we can find, we can basically find RNA, or we can find virons, or we can find some information that says that coronavirus is in these smaller particles. But what we don't have great information on is how infectious are those smaller particles? How much do we have to breathe in to get infected and that kind of thing? The thing is, the world we live in isn't rearranging itself to accommodate a spectrum of conditions. Our built world is starting to revolve around maintaining a distance of six feet. Parks, including San Francisco's famous Dolores Park, are painting white circles on the ground to designate where to sit. As schools reopen, guidelines from places like the American Pediatric Society have suggested that desks should be placed between three and six feet apart. I also spoke with Aaron Betsky, the director of Virginia Tech's School of Architecture and Design, about what kinds of more permanent changes we might expect to our built world after the pandemic. Aaron says we can expect things like better ventilation in indoor spaces and more easily cleaned surfaces. He also said design will become more private and isolating. This is going to be just one more layer of trying to isolate and insulate ourselves from other human beings and the real world. And in the end, it will be useless. Should we do it? Of course we should do it. We need to protect people. We need to protect ourselves because we have made ourselves vulnerable. All that you will see is the erection of shields and separating devices 
So uh, I think it's unfortunate that what had become a more collective and open and vibrant workplace in many uh, areas of people complain that they can't concentrate is going to turn in back into Dilbert land. This has been episode 67 of Inside COVID-19. The full interviews of the highlights that are featured in this podcast are available separately on the bizuse.com website or on our app. Thanks for being with us. I'm Alec Hogg. Until tomorrow, cheerio. This conversation on COVID-19 was made possible by Discovery.